0: Uh, but a very important man. Uh, Nahum comes on the scene about a hundred years after Jonah, and God uh, gives Nahum the ministry or the, the uh, commission, if you will, to prophesy specifically uh, to the city of Nineveh, uh, which is unusual. It's a, it's a, a Gentile nation, a Gentile city. If you remember, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians, the capital city of the Assyrians, is a mighty city. In fact, at the time of Nahum, about a hundred years after Jonah, they are at their zenith as an empire. They're at the most powerful that the Assyrian Empire will ever become in the history. Um, they were very, very powerful for many, many years as a world-dominant force. The city of Nineveh was, uh, had reached a pinnacle, and while there was great revival under Jonah, uh, and we saw the entire city come to uh, repentance, uh, it only lasted about a hundred years. And uh, it's interesting, and I just want to say this, uh, God did a great work in Nineveh, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, and even though they were a Gentile city uh, from a country that had been very cruel and had done some things toward uh, the nation of Israel, uh, and, and even has had brought uh, Judah under tribute, um, they, they were they were sought after by God. God understood and knew uh, that there was there were some people there that were still soft hearted enough to receive the message of Jonah and to repent. And so God sent Jonah. We remember the story uh, to Nineveh. Uh, Nahum is different. He's he's also giving a message to Nineveh, uh, but he does not go to the city. He does it from afar off. God does not send him there. And I I pondered some of that, and and there's no reason given in Scripture, I'll tell you what I think is the reason why, because of what we read in Nahum, that the city had been so far uh, away from the Lord, given to idolatry, and given to unusual cruelty, that uh, God spared Nahum's life by keeping him from Nineveh. Now, God certainly could have protected Nahum. I'm not. I'm not limiting God on that. Um, but I believe that that was God's way of keeping Nahum safe, uh, to keep him out of the city, and yet still to prophesy. The prophecy that Nahum gives to Nineveh is that they're going to be utterly destroyed. They're going to be uh, taken from this mighty, mighty power. In fact. At the time that Nahum writes this, uh, Nineveh is quite possibly, in a lot of the the, the uh, historical records that I've studied on and read a little bit about, and some of the archaeological accounts that were given, um, many of the the experts that have studied the city of Nineveh as, as specifically have said that more than likely it was probably the most powerful uh, city. Um, that had ever been built in the Old Testament, it was looked at as uh, unconquerable. Uh, they had walls uh, around the city of Nineveh that were 100 feet high, uh, that were wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side on the top of them. And they had towers on the, on the wall, on top of the wall, that went another 100 feet. So you could imagine putting archers up in these towers. They had a moat all the way around the city that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And so you couldn't get these catapults and these war machines up next to the wall. And it was literally, it was looked at as as an unconquerable city. Uh, Many of the historians of the day believed that Nineveh could have withstood a siege for over 20 years without giving in. Which was interesting because when when Assyria did fall, they fell to... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, uh, the same one that conquered Israel and took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego off into captivity. And his favorite mode or his favorite tactic of conquering powerful cities was to set siege to them. And he would just surround the city and starve them out, basically. And sometimes it would take a year or two. But Nineveh was known as a city that could have withstood over 20 years of a siege. And yet God says... Uh, I'm going to destroy you. <clears throat> Nineveh did not take the message from Nahum very well. They are, at this point, idolatrous. They've turned completely away from God. And uh, I do want to say this, that while God gave great revival in the time of Jonah, we're looking at a period of 100 years, which is basically two generations of people. You have children and grandchildren now of those that had experienced the revival uh, of Jonah's time. And what a heartbreaking thing it is to see that though those people had great revival and turned to God, it was not passed down from generation to generation to the children. And the importance that there is of guiding and directing our children spiritually and leading them in the things of the Lord. Uh, and so we see this this neglect here, perhaps, without it being stated specifically. We find that certainly it was neglected. Uh, the... Um, uh, Within within 50 years of Nahum's prophecies, uh, in fact, just just a little under 50 years, everything that Nahum prophesied that God had told him to share to Nineveh came to pass. They were destroyed as a city, uh, which was unthinkable. I mean, even the even the enemies of Nineveh uh, would not consider the fact that it was a conquerable city, and. Um, I want us to look at a couple things about how that took place. So let's look in chapter number 1. We're going to read down several verses here, if you will. Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take His vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserveth wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. "...and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and, in the, clouds, uh, uh, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at Him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein." Who can stand before His indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down uh, by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust him. Now I want to stop for just a moment, and there are several things that I think are very uh, important for us to understand. Out of the three chapters, each chapter is kind of divided into a section. The first one, uh, the first section. Uh, that is being dealt with here is uh, God giving His decree of judgment and stating to Nineveh, uh, you're going to be judged. And this time, uh, there's not a chance for repentance. He had already given them that a hundred years before, had spared them His judgment, and uh, because they had returned back to their evil and their wicked ways, their ungodly ways, and even more so and more exceeding than they were before, God said, I'm going to judge you. And in chapter 1, He, he decrees this. He tells Nineveh what to do. In these verses that we just read, verses 1-7, to we find that Nahum outlines the character of God and he talks about some of God's attributes. Very important as we come to Scripture that when we read Scripture as a Christian, we don't just read the Word of God, but that we look into Scripture and try to see the God of the Word. And to make sure that as we read Scripture, we are learning things about God Himself. By the way, if we can read passages like this and understand the truth of it, it causes us to be even more in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. Because we see that God cannot and will not tolerate sin. Uh, There are several things that the Bible speaks of here in these seven verses regarding the character of God. And uh, God is a just God, and because of His justice... He does seek just vengeance and, 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 uh, pers- and uh, uh, penalty or punishment for the wickedness that these, the city has gotten involved in. Just because God is a loving God does not mean He's not a just God. There is still a penalty for sin. There is still judgment of God for sin. And by the way, uh, just because we're forgiven of our sin doesn't mean that we can go out here and God's okay with us continuing to sin. I'm thankful that He's forgiven us. I'm thankful that He's loved us enough and that His grace was greater than our sin. But that does not give us reason to go out here just because of that and say, God is okay with my sin, so I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Over and over in Scripture, the Bible speaks of the fact that you have to be quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. The idea that we are new creatures in Christ, that that when we got saved, the day we trusted Christ as our Savior, that there was a regeneration that took place inside of us, a transforming work inside of us. And just because God's grace is inexhaustible, and it is, and just because His mercy is long-suffering and patient with us, and it is, it's very important that we also understand He is a just God. And He cannot and does not tolerate sin. He is not pleased, He is not happy when we as His people who have been forgiven of our sin continue in sin. It is a displeasure to him. It is something that grieves him. It is something that, that because of our choice, the Holy Spirit is hindered from doing the work that he wants to do in us. He's grieved and he's quenched. The Bible speaks of that. And so it's very important as we look in verse 2 and 3 and 4, we see God is a jealous God. He, he brings this uh, vengeance. He revengeth uh, the uh, those he is furious, and uh, I think in the day we live, we have so uh, coddled sin and made it made it not as distasteful as it should be. The Bible speaks that in our when it comes to our sin, it uses the word abhorreth. We we ought to abhor our sin. It ought to be something. And we talked about Job. Uh, it said that he he eschewed sin. Uh, he hated unrighteousness and ungodliness. And there needs to be revival in the day that we live of us hating the sin. I, I, I'm not saying hate the people. We need to love people. We need to love souls. And we need to try to reach them with the gospel. But the sin we cannot and must not be okay with. We can't just look at it and say, well, that's okay. You can, you can do what you want to do. Or look into our own life and say, that's okay. I can do what I want to do. Sin is, is horrible to God. It makes him furious. It's something that causes him to bring judgment and vengeance upon his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. But now what you notice in verse number 3, it also speaks of God's patience. And certainly, God, I think God specifically brings this to, to, to view for Nineveh. Because He's decreeing His judgment on Nineveh. And in order to justify Himself to the Ninevites. Now, let me, I'm going to make that phrase and then I'm going to pause there for a minute. Does God have to justify Himself for anything to us as humans? No, He doesn't. But when He does, it's for their benefit. It's for the benefit of those that are here on this earth to see that, yes, God is bringing judgment. And He speaks here, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm angry at this, I'm furious at this, I'm, I'm going to bring destruction, I'm going to bring judgment. But I want you to know, that I have been patient. And the Ninevites could not argue that point with God, could they? God had certainly been patient with them. God had a hundred years before decided to destroy them, and yet He chose to send Jonah to try to help them and to give them a chance and a choice. It cannot be said to the Ninevites that God did not give them a chance. He was certainly patient. In verse 3, the Bible says, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not acquit the wicked, at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And then then he declares not only uh, his uh, vengeance on his on the sin and the way he views sin, not only his long suffering and his patience, but then he shows his power and his might. And he sees we see this in verses four through seven. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it to dry. You know that the waves of the ocean are more obedient to God than you and I are. That's a sad commentary. Do you know that the winds of nature are more obedient to God than you and I are? When He commands the waves and He commands the winds, they obey. The Bible says that. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, Carmel, the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at Him. The hills melt. The earth is burned in His presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. How in the world does man get to the place where we become so arrogant as to think we can stand before God and try to justify ourselves to Him? What an arrogance there is to that. God is God. Is God. He is all-powerful. He, we have no merit. We have no right to stand before a holy God and plead our case. The very fact that He allows us to come into His presence and to pray to Him and to have a relationship with Him is only because of His mercy and His grace being extended to us. He doesn't owe that to us. If God had decided to destroy man and never redeem him, He would have been just to do so. And no one could have blamed Him for it. I'm thankful he's also a loving God. He was patient with Nineveh. He gave them a chance. They took the chance initially, but uh, through the course of time, uh, turned back from that. And so in chapter number two, we find that Nahum describes how, uh, God, or describes, uh, yeah, how God is going to uh, do and what God is going to do to the nation of Nineveh, or the city of Nineveh and the Assyrians as a whole. He speaks not only of their destruction, but he tells them how he's going to accomplish it. And uh, he talks about, in uh, verse number 8 of chapter 1, if you'll look with me there, he, he indicates to, to, to Nineveh, now remember this city is an impenetrable city. It's considered unconquerable. It's, it's at the, probably the most powerful city in the Old Testament that had ever been built. And notice in verse number 8, the Bible says, "...with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies." Here this city, as a city, was sitting prideful upon their, their defenses and saying, we're an all-powerful city, uh, God's not going to destroy us, and uh, it's not a big problem. Isaiah, you can come on in, it's not going to bother me, and yeah, you can come on in. Uh, and, and he's not even. they're not even worried about that. And uh, when Nahum tells them these things, they kind of scoff at him. And they're sitting in their, their city, uh, surrounded with their defenses, and they're saying, Name, you're, you're a fool. That's never going to happen. Even their leaders, as mighty as they were, uh, as strong as they were in influence around the area, and boy, these, these leaders of Nineveh, that was the capital city of Assyria, uh, these leaders that were there, people from all over the world, looked to them and trembled at them. Their might and their influence, and their power and their cruelty. And all of it was brought to naught because God just looked down and said, It's done. We're done with it. And it didn't even hurt God to do it. It didn't take any battle of, of, of might or strength from Him. It didn't cause Him to be depleted of any strength. He just simply looked down and said, I want, the, I want the river to overflow. And I want it to cause the wall to disintegrate and make a breach in the wall. And that's exactly what happened. Less than 50 years later, the river overflowed and it undermined a section of the wall. And the wall collapsed and made a breach in the wall. And the, the uh, Babylonians... Uh, took advantage of it. They went right through the breach of the wall. They went into the city and they plundered it. If you'll take time to read chapter 2, and you can take time to read it this afternoon, probably one of the most vivid and very detailed descriptions of a battle that we have in the Old Testament is found in Nahum chapter 2. And uh, part of chapter number 3 is they go in and they conquer the city. talks about, uh, in fact, we'll just read a little bit of it. Let's turn to chapter 2 for a minute. And, uh, Oh, let's go to um, verse number 6. Let's go to verse number 6 of chapter 2. The gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. Uh, And Huzab uh, shall be led away captive, and she shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, uh, doves, and tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away, stand, stand, shall they uh, uh, cry no more. Uh, shall they cry but none shall look back take ye the spoil of silver take the spoil of uh, gold for there is none in the end and the store of glory and of the pleasant furniture Um, and so we find that there's an awful lot of uh, very specific things let's go back um, go back to verse number three I didn't quite go back far enough verse number three the shield of his mighty men is made red the valiant men are in scarlet the chariots be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. So there's it's a very bloody battle, and Nineveh is overtaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets; they shall jostle one against the other, uh, another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches, and they shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worth, uh, his worthies; they shall stumble in their walk they shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. And uh, so we find that there's uh, very vivid... I mean, these chariots are running through the streets. They're lit up like fire. And um, God conquers Nineveh. And the Bible says, and Nahum prophesies this, that when the battle is over, Nineveh shall be hid from the earth. Very shortly after the battle, there was no indication in historical records of Nineveh. Nobody knew where it was anymore. They couldn't find it. In fact, for many hundreds of years, in fact, a couple thousand years, about almost 2,000 years, no one knew where the city of Nineveh was located. It had been literally wiped off the face of the earth. It wasn't until the middle of the 1800s some archaeologists finally uncovered it and found the city again, but God did do exactly what He said He was going to do. He hid it from the earth. They weren't even a presence on the earth. This once mighty city, probably the most powerful city that had ever been built, was brought to nothing. I want us to understand that. I hope we grasp that concept today. Because no matter how strong somebody thinks they are, how powerful they think they are, no matter how much somebody thinks, I've got this, I don't need God in my life, God can bring it all to naught. There's a lot of arrogance in the world that we live in today. People that defy God, some that even acknowledge His existence but still defy Him, and they think that, boy, God is not going to get me. I've, I'm, the, I'm all this. I've got wealth. I've got affluence. I've got power. And the Bible says it is appointed a man wants to die, and after this the judgment. When we die, we're not going to take the things that we have with us. We're not going to take the affluence that we have with us and the influence. We stand before God one day in judgment, and when those that are lost stand before God one day in judgment, they're not going to be able to stand up there with all of their wealth and all their influence and make some kind of a case for themselves before God. They will stand speechless and without excuse. I don't care how powerful somebody thinks they get, how how self-sufficient they think they get, God is still God. And very important that we understand this. One of the reasons that was stated in chapter number 3 as to why God brought the judgment on Nineveh was because of their their prideful arrogance. There was wickedness, there was cruelty, there was ungodliness, there was idolatry. But part of it was their absolute arrogance, their pride of being the most powerful uh, city and nation. Chapter Number two deals with uh, the, the things it specifies what God's going to do to bring the judgment, and how He's going to bring it about. And then chapter number three uh, deals with the justification of the judgment. And God certainly doesn't need to justify himself. He does that for the benefit of those reading this years later to explain the fact that He is a just God. And he goes through and tells why he does this. And he begins in verse one of chapter three, "Woe to the bloody city." It is all full of lies and robbery and prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and the prancing horses and of jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both his bright sword and the glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses. There is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms. The family through her witchcrafts, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame. God doesn't mince words with him, does He? He pretty well tells him, This is why I'm doing this. This is why there's not an opportunity this time to repent. I've been a patient God. I've given you the opportunity. But now my vengeance is full of your wickedness. Naam is the author. Uh, the only indication we have of that is from verse number one. Uh, he's from a town. He's known as an uh, Elkishite. Uh, there, is, there is not a town that is named that, a city that is named that, <coughs> because it more than likely was renamed. Um, there's a couple of uh, historians who believe that uh, Capernaum, which we are familiar with, uh, was probably the city... Uh, that he got that uh, Elkishite, uh designation from, that was probably later renamed. The reason they believe that is because Capernaum, the name Capernaum literally means the city of Nahum. Uh, so, very, very good possibility. Come on in, come on in. Uh, very good possibility um, that uh, that this was a renamed city, uh, and that Capernaum is probably the city that he came from. Uh, the Christ of, uh, Nahum, uh, we don't find any direct messianic prophecies in Nahum itself. However, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we read about that, the attributes of God, uh, very much so seem to give us a picture of, uh, God's authority, or Christ, specifically Christ's authority, uh, as he comes back in the second coming, uh, as judge of the nations. And, uh, certainly we can see that pictured in chapter 1. Uh, verses 1-7, through seven, that he has that, that uh, right. Um, the key theme is the judgment of Nineveh. Uh, if there was ever a city that deserved the title that they were indestructible or unconquerable, it would have been Nineveh, and yet it was uh, brought to uh, its knees and uh, literally taken off the face of the earth in less than 50 years from the time of this prophecy simply because God said, uh, I'm through with you, you're done. And God, God certainly has everything in control. We began to see the might and the power of God that literally He commanded a river to overflow and conquered a city by it. Uh, God, God can do what God wants to do. We, we, these people that stand up and say that we have authority and God can't do anything unless we give Him the right or the authority, they're not finding that in my Bible. God does what God chooses to do, and He's right to do so. He's just to do so. Key verses are chapter one verses seven and eight. Let's read those very quickly. Chapter one verses seven and eight. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. With an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. And darkness shall pursue his enemies. We find the destruction of Nineveh in here. We also in chapter three will find the restoration. Or chapter three will find the restoration of Judah. Uh, which is interesting because um, Assyria and Nineveh in particular conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten tribes. Uh, More than likely, Nahum was from the the lower region or at least uh, was familiar with Judah because he kind of makes Judah the the center point of restoration rather than Israel itself. Uh, Judah really never was fully conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, Under Ahaz, uh, they were or under Ahab, I think it was, or Ahaz, um, they had to um, pay tribute. Uh, the kings sought protection from the Assyrians and had to pay tribute to them, but they were never really conquered. Judah was never really conquered uh, by the Assyrians. They, they did oppress them. They did influence them, put them under tribute. Um, but uh, Israel itself was uh, forcefully militarily conquered. Uh, a lot of cruelty uh, during that conquering, which is why, if you'll remember back when we studied Jonah, it's why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. It wasn't that he was scared to do God's will. It's just he didn't like the Ninevites. He hated them. They, they had done so many atrocities to his people. Uh, there was a hatred there. In fact, so much so that when he did do uh, what God's bidding was, and Nineveh repented, he went through a fit about it. He didn't want to see Nineveh spared. Uh, they were cruel. They were mean. They deserved the punishment of God, and Jonah pouted about it. And uh, so, understand this: that um, uh, even though there is a mention of Judah being restored here, uh, the the Assyrians primarily were responsible for conquering the northern kingdom. Even though they did put uh, oppression on uh, Judah, and then uh, the other key verses, chapter three, verses five and seven, five through seven. Let's read those: Nehemiah chapter or Nahum, excuse me, chapter three, verses. I don't know why I said Nehemiah there. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who shall bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? So again, God's uh, judgment upon Nineveh for their wickedness. Key chapter is chapter number one, where it really pictures the attributes of God and lays a foundation for His judgment uh, to be given on it. So, three uh, basic divisions of the chapter. We have in chapter one, God saying He's going to bring judgment. In chapter two, He's telling how and uh, uh, some of the reasonings behind that. And then in chapter three, specifically, He gives uh, His justification or reasoning uh, very strongly as to why He's bringing judgment on uh, Nineveh. Uh, Nahum's book is is specifically written to Nineveh, although there is some indication that Israel and Judah uh, needed to sit up and take heed to how God was dealing with Nineveh uh, to avoid judgment themselves. And so even though it was primarily given to Nineveh, uh, it wasn't that Israel or Judah could not benefit from it. By the way, even though God gives a lot of Scripture, to Israel specifically in in the Old Testament does not mean that we can't glean some truth from it to help us. We can certainly learn God's heart and God's mind, His way of acting on things, um, His His view of sin, uh, His judgment, His long-suffering. We can find all of these things that certainly are pertaining to us. We see more of His character, more of how He acts. And so don't think that the Old Testament is not valuable to us. It is extremely valuable. There are things we can learn from it uh, the principles of Scripture, I think, that are very important for us to live by in the day we live. All right, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer and then uh, be ready for our next service here in about four or five minutes, uh, about seven minutes. Lord, we do thank you for the day that you've given and the opportunity to come to your word and to be able to study it. And, Father, I pray that you'd help us to learn things from these studies in the Old Testament. Even though Nineveh was a Gentile city, even though uh, they were not part of your chosen people, A lot of things that we can learn from them. Their repentance, their willingness